We asked a question here this morning, as you can see at the top of your bulletin. We're looking at the unforgivable sin. The unpardonable sin, we might call it, as people refer to it. What is the unforgivable sin? Can you imagine if different people in the world had, had the ability to define what the unforgivable sin is? They might define it as just like making a mistake that they just feel like is just unable to come back from. I heard about a, a mother in a family who, who texted her children and said, Dear Aunt Myrtle passed away, LOL. They're like, Mom, what do you think LOL means? She said, Love you lots. I'm like, No, it means laugh out loud, Mom. And she felt that that was unforgivable, unpardonable, unredeemable from that point. You know, for me, if I had the chance to define the unforgivable sin, it would probably be leaving a shopping cart in the middle of the parking lot and then getting in one's car, taking out a bag of, of fast food garbage, setting it on the ground, and then driving off. Aren't you glad that I don't get to define the unforgivable sin? Uh, there was an uh, owner of a movie theater in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, a Greek man, he, he, and the reason why I know that is they played My Big Fat Greek Wedding every day at this uh, movie theater. And so he had a system where the cold air uh, return, the intake, was right over the popcorn machine so that it would pump the smell of fresh popped popcorn into all of the theaters. The unforgivable sin, I think, if he were able to define it, would be if you burned the popcorn. And literally, if any of the employees burned the popcorn, they were sent home uh, for the day. Uh, you know, some might think that they have committed unforgivable mistakes, unforgivable sins. But indeed, we, 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 when we think about whether anything exists that would put a person outside of God's forgiveness, we think of more severe actions, right? <clears throat> Maybe breaking up of a marriage with an affair, you know, being what we call a homewrecker. Somebody might say molesting a child, that would have to be unforgivable. Being a serial killer, committing genocide, I think the most common idea that we have is the idea that suicide is somehow unredeemable, unforgivable. I'll try to leave time this morning to answer that question at the end. Is suicide unpardonable? So before we get into our passage here this morning in which Jesus defines the unforgivable sin. I think we need to have a little bit of review here. Uh, we've seen different responses to Jesus' ministry. And we, we haven't been in chapter 12 of Matthew since before Christmas. And so we're going to have a little bit of review here. In chapters 11 and 12, we see different responses to Jesus' ministry of the gospel. John the Baptist sends his followers to ask the question, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another We've seen Jesus address the people of the towns who rejected his gospel. In chapter 11, in verse 21, he says to them, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
We've seen Jesus' invitation to rest in him and his saving work. In chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, we read, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Almost in uh, leading off of Jesus talking about that we can rest in him, that we are called to rest in his saving work, Jesus deals with the Sabbath rest. He's dealing with the religious leaders and their accusations over his approach to the Sabbath. If you remember from chapter 12, verse 8, here in the chapter that we're in, he says that he, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. And you might remember that he entered into a synagogue, and there was there a man with a withered hand. And the, and the Pharisees bring this man to him and ask the question, is it, is it right to heal someone on the Sabbath? And he has the man stretch out his hand, and it's healed. And from that point in verse 14 of the chapter that we're in, it says the Pharisees went out to conspire against him how to destroy him. He was messing with their rules, offering people real rest. Jesus' response to opposition we saw in verses 15 through 21, where it says that he withdrew, aware that they were going to try to destroy him, to destroy his ministry, he withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them, and he ordered them not to make him known. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And if you recall, that led us into looking at how Jesus in, in the description of this fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah, it led us into looking at how Jesus in, during the Christmas season is understood to fulfill so much and really all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Now this morning, we see a response to Jesus that without repentance is unforgivable. That's what Jesus warns the religious leaders of, that their response without repentance is unforgivable. And so we are learning about, as I mentioned, the unforgivable sin. So we pick up in verse 22. We're looking at verses 22 through 37 of Matthew 12 here this morning. We read, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So Jesus heals a man whose physical condition is obviously the result of demonic oppression in some way. And similar to where we see people amazed in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is able to, to heal a man who was born blind. And, and people are, are like amazed by that. We just have to 
learned something from their amazement. There was something in his deliverance of this man from demonic oppression that resulted in him being able to see and being able to speak at that moment, you know, like immediately, that caused the crowd to say, wow. Their amazement here, it's a different term than what's usually used in the Gospel of Matthew. Usually Matthew will talk about people marveling. When people are amazed, it, it, it wraps up astonishment and even like a fearful, holy awe because something awesome has happened and someone awesome is in front of them. So, so there's very clear, and, and Jesus will actually refer to some of the followers of the Pharisees who were also exorcists in some way. But this, what Jesus does here, is some, in some way definitively amazing in itself. And we, we see when, when it says, when the Pharisees heard it, this is a jealous response to the crowd. The Pharisees give this bold and dumb explanation of Jesus' power over evil. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of sorcery, basically manipulating the spirit world through some sort of magic. It's an extremely serious accusation. It's punishable in the Old Testament. In, in the Old Testament times, it was like, if you find a sorcerer, a soothsayer, a necromancer, don't even let them live. And so this is, this is an extreme accusation. They claim that the devil is enabling Jesus to defeat the devil's forces. With Jesus' power being undeniable, see, the Pharisees are left to only question the source of Jesus' power. In, we continue on in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided itself will stand. He's not quoting Abraham Lincoln here. Some of you guys get that. But, um, and if Satan, he continues, if Satan casts out Satan, he is dividing, divided against himself. How then would his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So Jesus shows his power as the all-knowing God. Notice, as he's described as knowing their thoughts. We continue, but if, if it is the Spirit, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin of blas and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I want to point out that verse 31 is really the central statement for what we're talking about here this morning. Okay, In that question of what is the unpardonable sin, we see in verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, doesn't that make it clear right there? And you're like, no, J.D., that doesn't make it clear. But anyways, only the, uh, we are called to obey the Holy Spirit's conviction regarding Christ. We are called to obey the Holy Spirit's conviction regarding Christ. And we'll, we'll, uh, what we are looking at here this morning, really, if you follow with me, it, it, it explains that out. It, it teases that out. It, it, it's kind of a big deal. Everyone wonders whether or not, whether, whether they know it or not, everyone wonders, am I good with God? Is there anything that, that, that God just would turn his back on me for? How far is too far to be redeemed? We'll see that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a matter of calling God a liar when it comes to Jesus. First, I want you to see that we obey the Spirit's conviction by submitting to Christ as God. That, that's what is, is being done here, what, what the, the sin that is being committed by these Pharisees is denying that Jesus is God, even though it has been made absolutely plain before them. It is undeniable, yet they still deny it. The, the crowd is sitting there saying, can this be the son of David? In verse 23. They're asking if Jesus is the anointed, the promised one that is to come. They expected to see such spiritual authority exercised in the Messiah. And it's especially the case since it's been over 400 years since the Spirit spoke through one of God's prophets. We continue in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus' first way of pointing out their prideful stupidity here of the Pharisees, is to make a point regarding strategy. He's basically asking them, what sort of sense does it make that Satan would fight against his own spiritual forces? He's like, you're not even making sense here. And he goes on to say, if I, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom does your, do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. His second argument here points out to the, the collateral damage of the Pharisees' rash statement. He deals with the idea that if they're going to be so ridiculous as about this spiritual warfare, the exorcists from among their own ranks will take issue with what they're saying here. 
And really, verse 28 is kind of the money shot statement. After which I think Jesus could just kind of drop the mic and walk away. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So rather than like you're saying, this could only happen by the spirit of the evil one. He's like, you're just admitting that if I'm doing this by the spirit of God, you've got to, you've got to accept the fact that the kingdom of God is here. Rather than working by the power of the devil, Jesus states that he works by the power of the spirit. And after the spirit of God had been dormant for so long after the ministry of the prophets, Jesus clearly claims that his powerful authority was a display of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was upon them because the king of the universe was on the scene. And therefore the kingdom of God was there. He continues on in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Having established that Jesus is not in cahoots with the devil, Jesus' third argument here highlights his power over the forces of darkness. No one can walk into someone's house and take their stuff without dealing with the one that's trying to protect it. The Old Testament evidence here is that, that the idea of the plunder that's, that's being taken by, from the devil in Jesus' picture here are the people that are held hostage. This man who was under demonic oppression to the point where he was blind and mute, he is the plunder. That Jesus is rescuing from the strong man. And in this sense, Satan aims to, keep, to try to keep the hostages that are his plunder. But Jesus has shown that he can free a person under the devil's oppression with power and authority. And the, and the Pharisees are just refusing to see it. Refusing to admit it even though they see it with their own eyes. So Jesus' display of the power of the Spirit of God over the evil sent a clear signal. The kingdom of God is present in the ministry of Jesus. And the bottom line is that there's only two sides to the kingdom. The Pharisees were either going to submit to Jesus as their anointed Messiah, or they were going to do the devil's work by opposing them. That's why he's saying, you're either with me or against me. Like what Warren Wearsby says here, the means that God is victor, this means that God is victor over Satan and that men must decide on whose side they will stand. There can be no compromise. We are either with God or against God, end quote. And as I said, verse 28 is really the statement here amidst all these verses. If the Spirit of God if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, this painted a picture for me in my mind, this, this scenario. And if you'll imagine with me, like, you've got a bank that's being guarded by, by this one guard, and he's kind of like a Barney Fife, right? He's kind of like a Barney Fife guard with, with, a, with a 
gun in his pocket and in one single bullet or gun in his holster and one single bullet in his pocket and but but in comes well-equipped powerful bank robbers that take everyone hostage and they're holding them hostage and they're stealing from the people so in swings like a you know mission impossible tom cruise sliding down from a harness and a rope you know, the, the special operations SWAT officer that comes in and, and quietly uh, subdues every bank robber like a ninja without any of the other ones knowing it. And before, before they know it, he stands up and he says to the hostages, you're free to go. Well, what does the guard do? Wait a second. That's impossible. You can't do that. If I couldn't do it, you couldn't do it. You know what? I bet you're just in cahoots with these with these hostage shakers. I just I bet you're just one of the criminals as as the the you know this special ops SWAT guy is like ushering the hostages out and he's like, "Are you serious?" That that that's what we're looking at here. It's undeniable that something amazing has happened. It's undeniable that Jesus is Savior and Lord and it's like fingers in their ears, eyes closed, blah blah blah, I can't see you, I can't hear you. Some people call themselves Christians and yet deny that Jesus is God. They might claim that, claim that he's one of many gods, like the Mormons do. They might, they might claim that he's, he's unique, but he's not Jehovah. He, he's not God on same par as Jehovah God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. These people are not followers of Christ and saved. Some evangelical teachers strip Jesus of Jesus' words of their power. They claim that, the, they, that only they know the true meaning. Only they, you know, all those unlearned people that wrote this down, all those people that weren't in, as evolved as we are, now I'm finally, in 2024, I am the teacher that is going to make it all clear to you, is the claim. You know, and claiming that only they know the true meaning make themselves the only authority on truth. Folks, our homes are to be places where Jesus' authority is honored, where we recognize Jesus is king. The kingdom of God is here. Our spouse, as spouses, as parents, as grandparents, we are to be representatives of Christ's kingdom, carrying out his will. And by so doing, we're to be on his gospel mission in our daily lives. As harvesters, we are to be a fellowship of those redeemed by Christ for his kingdom and his glory. Being on gospel mission outside of this place. So obey the Holy Spirit's conviction by submitting to Christ as God. And also, secondly, obey the Holy Spirit's conviction by seeking God's forgiveness in Christ. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven 
And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Folks, God's mercy and grace runs deep. All manner of sins, however grievous, have been laid on Christ. Even blasphemy. You know, <clears throat> just kind of doing some like searching on, on what people are asking about this online. You know, someone, someone asked, you know, I told a joke one time. And, and kind of like the Holy Spirit was kind of the punchline. Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? People wonder about this. Refusing to respond to the saving work of the Holy Spirit keeps a person from being able to be forgiven. And therefore, it is a sin that is unforgivable. Refusing to respond to the clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done in his saving work is unforgivable. Because the person is not receiving forgiveness. Or as a writer says, adultery, murder, blasphemy, and all other sins can all be forgiven. But they are not unpardonable. Um, Yet they are not unpardonable. But God cannot forgive the rejection of his son. Now that Jesus has finished speaking... All that remains is the work of the Spirit. When I say now that he's finished speaking, I'm saying we we have his words spoken. And now the Holy Spirit is at work. Jesus tells his followers in John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He also says in John 16, verses 17 through 11, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it will be to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Those who resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit in this life are not given a second chance after death that's what jesus is talking about when he says whoever speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come when when the person is saying speaking against against the holy spirit that's not like 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 the person asked online oh i told a joke and the holy spirit was the punchline did i speak against the holy spirit that what what it is is what these pharisees are doing when it is so obviously clear the gospel truth that jesus has conquered evil that he has wrenched away from the devil his power over this earth and the pharisees are saying he's not the one I don't, I don't care what he's doing. I don't care what we see. We're, we're going to think up some cockamamie a reason where we, why we can say he's not the one. They're speaking against the clear conviction of the Holy Spirit of who Jesus 
is. You know, on July 31st, 1992, a terrible thing happened. A Thai Airways International flight with 113 people on board were killed when the plane flew into the side of a mountain. Now granted, these mountains were over 12,000 feet tall in Nepal. But the pilot was upset. The pilot was, was frustrated. He was raging in the cockpit because he was so frustrated with the rookie air traffic controller that was trying to give him directions. And, and there was a miscommunication between them. But the, the ultimately, the last straw was the fact that the ground proximity warning system, which tells them there's, there's a mountain in front of you, turn, it was going off and blaring, but the pilot wasn't listening to it because he was so distracted and angry. He just was treating the alarm like, oh, now what else is, is uh, not working? He's basically like, well, somebody shut that alarm off and flew the plane right in the side of a mountain. Folks, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is God's warning system. And people are not going to be able to be saved if they won't listen to it. Specifically, it's letting people know you have sin that separates you from God. And that sin was laid on Christ. And Christ took care of it. And Christ, in taking your sin, offers you his righteousness. And, and, and his success in doing so, in paying for the penalty of our sin, is, is proven by his resurrection. If a person refuses to listen to what the Holy Spirit says about Christ, there is no hope of forgiveness. And the unbeliever is in a dangerous position because God stands as their judge now and they will meet him as their judge after death. And once the Holy Spirit makes the gospel clear, only God knows how long that window of salvation is open to the person. Do you hear that? Once the Holy Spirit makes the gospel clear, only God knows how long that window of salvation is open to that person. The purpose of God revealing his truth remains the same as when John wrote his gospel. John writes in John 20, verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So why did John write this book down? He says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So do I need to worry that I've committed the unpardonable sin? Do you believe the gospel? You're not committing it, if that's the case. Now, I'm not guaranteeing all of us, all of you, that you've been forgiven of your sins. That is the work of the Holy Spirit within you. The indwelling Holy Spirit that is given to every person that truly knows Christ as their Savior, that Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. That's what Romans 8, 16 tells us. 
And those that haven't trusted Christ as their Savior need to be warned. Once they see the truth, they should submit to the truth. To intentionally delay repentance from unbelief, to delay trusting Christ in save, as our Savior is a dangerous place to be. So from our verses, we, we've learned we need to obey the Holy Spirit's conviction by submitting to Christ as God and by seeking God's forgiveness in Christ. Lastly, we see that a person must obey the Holy Spirit's conviction by recognizing the sinfulness of their heart. That's what Jesus is getting at here, okay? So you've got these Pharisees in front of him that, that are saying, no matter how clear the evidence is before them, that the kingdom of God has come in this Christ the King, the Messiah, and they are like fingers in their ears, eyes closed. I just don't believe it. And, and he's warning them, listen, you can't be forgiven if you won't receive the gospel. And, and so he turns to, if you're going to basically try to live by your own righteousness, I've got some news for you. And that's basically what he's saying here in verses 33 through 37 where he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. In other words, the words that are coming out of your mouth are the fruit of where your heart is at. Is what he's telling them. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? So in other words, how can anybody trust the words that are coming out of your mouth right now? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. Forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I'm going to tell you this. We are all evil. I am so glad that I will not be judged by the condition of my heart. But for those that are saying, I don't need Jesus, they need to listen to the very words that are coming out of their mouth because it's an indication of where their heart is at. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So people think, people tend to think that there, there's things that, they, that we can do to make God happy with us. And they, people usually think they, they, if they do some big religious things, it will make up for what they consider minor sins. Those sins that just won't go away, we always consider those minor sins. Jesus tells them, the things that you think have no consequence, like, like your words, they show who you truly are. It was so easy for you Pharisees to just say, well, uh, yeah, he's just doing this by the, demons, by the devil's power. That was so easy for that to roll off your lips. Guess what? It's showing you the unrepentance of your heart. And those who are resting, who are resisting the Holy Spirit are going to face judgment without grace. And they will be judged not on their religious activity, but on their hearts. And the heart is shown by the things 
Like There are things like careless words, the small, seemingly insignificant things that they do and say when their guard is down. Jesus gives us the illustration of this idea that, that a tree that's got bad fruit on it, that just can't seem to produce any sort of good fruit, it's not, it's, it, the, the, there's something wrong with the tree. You know, um, if 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 uh, my tree is what I would be, you know, judged by by the Lord, it doesn't help for me to go buy a bunch of pineapples and and hang and tie them to the branches and saying, "Look, God, what do you think?" And in the same way, people that are not trusting in Christ as their Savior, but are trusting in their own good works, they're thinking, "Well, if I just do a lot of good religious things." Then, then I can hang that on my tree, and God will see that, and, and, and I'll be all right with him. Jesus is saying, you need to look at your heart and the little things that you do when you think nobody is looking. That's showing you what your heart, where your heart is at. A fruit problem is a root problem. No matter how good a person thinks they are, the evil in their hearts comes out in unguarded things like their words. What is God going to judge a person for? The condition of their sinful heart. Not the Christian t-shirt that they're wearing in the grocery store. If they don't know Christ as their Savior, they're going to be judged for their hearts and their hearts are being shown by what they say under their breath when the person in front of them at the grocery store is uh, pulling out all their coupons and uh, making them late. So the issue of the unpardonable sin is not a question of, have I done something that is unforgivable? What we should be asking ourselves is, am I believing that Jesus is not the Savior God? And therefore, am unforgivable? Am I placing myself outside of the grace of God by refusing to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior? That is the question that we should be asking. So where does the idea come from that suicide is the unpardonable sin? You know, I, I said I would, I would revisit this. So the idea, I believe, is that the person has done something awful and they don't have the opportunity to make up for it. It flows out of the idea that, that a person has to make up for their wrongdoing by right living. The Apostle Paul recognized that his heart could not, it could never be pure enough to deserve a relationship with God. The Apostle Paul had a lot of religious achievements that he initially thought would earn God's forgiveness. Young people, um, Josh and, and uh, Mike are teaching on this tonight and, um, from Philippians 3. How, how the Apostle Paul, had he could check off all the boxes. I've done this and I've done this and I was this and I was this and I was this. But when he met Christ, he realized he needed the righteousness of Christ, period. That's why he said, I count all of this stuff as loss 
for the sake of knowing Christ. And his, his whole understanding when he realized that Christ was the Savior was that he needed a righteousness that was not his own. But that, a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, he says. In our passage this morning, Jesus is telling his hearers and, uh, and us, if you're going to try to impress God with your own righteousness rather than thinking of your achievements, notice your every stray word because that shows you where your heart is at. That shows you that you're truly unrighteousness and you need a righteousness that is not your Listen to the convicting, convincing work of the Holy Spirit about me, he says. And if you don't listen to the Holy Spirit about Jesus, you can never be forgiven. And praise God if you know Christ as your Savior. He got you to listen. He got you to repent. He got you to believe. That's how it works. Let's bow our heads. Father God, I thank you again for your truth coming from the word himself. I thank you, Lord God, for living your message out before us in Jesus. How amazing is it that the God of the universe is saying you need what I did for you. And Lord, we are amazed at our sinfulness that we would resist you for years, that we would ignore you. Lord, I pray for, for our loved ones. that are ignoring your call. I pray, Lord God, for, for our neighbors. I pray, Lord, for anyone here. That is resisting the convicting and convincing work of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that you would bring them to faith. So that they might be forgiven. So that they might be pardoned by your grace. Lord, none of us deserve it. All of us hear our hearts, whether they come out of our mouths or, or rings around in our head, all of us sees the sinfulness of our lives. And we thank you so much for the grace that you give us in Christ. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd allow more to recognize it. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name.